the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in every revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Moses saw that the people were running wild. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. That day... About 3,000 of the people died. Now, these, these were Israelites. The very people that God had delivered out of slavery in Egypt just a short time before. And yet on that day, about 3,000 of those people died. These weren't Canaanites. Okay, these, these were not the people that inhabited the, the promised land. These were not the people that God was sending the Israelites to conquer. These, these Canaanites who worshipped this fertility god called Baal, whose worship included the sacrifice of children. 
whose mutilated bodies were entombed in the walls of their homes in order to ward off evil spirits. No, it wasn't them. These were Israelites. Descendants of Abraham, the father of the faith, God's chosen people, brothers, friends, neighbors, not people that were unknown to them. And that day, 3,000 of them died. 3,000. Cut down by sword-wielding members of the tribe of Levi, the tribe that God himself would set aside as his priests. Go figure. And they died, these 3,000 people, they died for what? What did they do to deserve this? I mean, okay, so they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and and granted, they had been delivered from bondage in in a stunningly miraculous way. Ten plagues, each designed to demonstrate God's might and supremacy over the gods of Egypt, ending with the death of the Egyptian firstborn. That last plague manifested the God of Israel's power over life and death and drove home the fact that he should not be trifled with. When he spoke, he meant business. Sure, God had had rescued them from the pursuing Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea so that they walked on dry land, and they had watched. I have to believe with, with kind of a mixture of joy and at the same time horror. As the crashing waves swept over the Egyptian army and drowned them. No question they had seen God's hand at work in an unmistakable and undeniable way. And now God had led them to Mount Sinai where he delivered to Moses in his own hand the Ten Commandments. Ten principles upon which the nation of Israel was to be founded. Principles that governed, first of all, their relationship with God and then their relationship with each other. And the first two commandments couldn't have been more clear when you, when you think about it. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Why? I mean, what's the big deal? Why is worshiping an idol a thing for God? I mean, hasn't he heard that there are many paths to God? Is he not aware of that? You know, the second commandment goes on to say something very telling. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous. Seriously. I mean, it's right there in the second commandment. Chances are most of us didn't realize that. We didn't really think about it. And that's, that's not the only place it appears. Later in Exodus, the Lord tells Moses this, and this is God speaking. He says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. I mean, some of you are probably thinking, man, I don't don't remember that being in there. God calls himself, says, my name's Jealous. Whose name is Jealous. He's a jealous God, as if if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to repeat it. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This is God saying, Jealous is my name. In other words, I deserve and demand exclusive devotion. I'm completely intolerant of any rival for your affection. And this isn't just some feeling of jealousy, some emotion that's not really acted upon. No, this this jealousy is accompanied by action. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He will not allow another to have the honor and the worship that is due to him alone. 
In fact, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah said, I will not yield my glory to another. In other words, I don't share worship. I don't share honor. I don't share glory. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. When Moses went back up on Mount Sinai to receive the stone tablets and further instructions from God, the people became restless. And though they had seen the invisible God of the universe in action, when Moses was gone for 40 days, they reverted to a pagan worldview. They said, make us gods that will go before us. And that phrase, go before us, means something. It means a God to lead us. Make us gods to lead us, gods that we can follow. And so they fashion a golden calf and an idol in direct violation of the second commandment. And then they have the audacity to say, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Wow. And they worshipped an image made by their own hands. And that day, about a thousand of the people died. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, people died over that? God executed people over that? What is that about? Why would he do that? Oh, okay, okay. So, so let's assume God is the one and only God. There is no other. And, let, and let's assume, just for a moment, he warned them. Okay? And by extension, us, if you think about it, okay? Don't have any other gods before me. And don't make yourself idols. Don't make idols. And yes, they did it, what he explicitly and unequivocally said, don't do. But that gets you death. I mean, the death penalty? You kidding me? No second chance, no, no general instruction. Hey, you, you messed up. Don't do that again. Just 3,000 people died that day. Whatever happened to God is love. You know, friends, stories like this are troubling because they present us with a God who is more than just mercy and grace and love. In fact, God informs Moses that his anger burns against the people, those who worship the calf. How are we supposed to respond to stories like this? And how do we as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, how do we make sense of this? You know, it's stories like this that turn many people off. Richard Dawkins, the atheist who authored a best-selling book called The God Delusion, this is what he wrote. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now, understand, he considers the Bible fiction. It's not real. That stuff never happened. These are all stories that people made up. Fables, myths, legends. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And then he begins to describe him. And notice what he starts with. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Is that true? Is he right? You know, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people who go to church week in and week out, people who identify themselves as Christians, agree with Dawkins. Do. I would be willing to bet there are some sitting here this morning that think he's right. 
In fact, one publisher of children's Bible school material had this statement in their commentary on a similar Old Testament passage. It said, passages like this reflect the pre-educated, pre-scientific, primitive Hebrews as they sought to understand the world in which they lived. From the perspective of the New Testament, we know that God in His love and mercy would never do such a thing. In other words, these writers of a Bible commentary said that's not true. That never happened. Because we know God wouldn't do that. Oh, really? You know, all of the Old Testament stories about God's judgment being visited upon individuals and being visited on nations never happened? It's all fiction? It's all made-up stuff that isn't true? So, so think about it. All this stuff in your Bible that comes before Matthew, the New Testament, all of this didn't happen. And this, and you have to understand that a whole bunch of this at the end is a concordance. That's all that's good in here. And come think of it, some of that's not so good either because there's a couple people that die real suddenly in here at the hand of God. So we don't like that either. You know, think about it. Is it any wonder that studies indicate that the younger generations are rejecting Christianity and leaving the church in droves? And one of the major factors fueling the exit is this. They are asking a very reasonable and a very smart question. And the question is, if I can't believe all of this up to here, if I can't believe any of this, why should I believe this? Why? Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And remember, he's quoting the Old Testament, the first part. In fact, the Old Testament, you could say, was Jesus' Bible. That's what he and the people of his day had. These were the words that came from the mouth of God. But you see, we're too educated. We're too sophisticated. We're too civilized for a God whose name is jealous, right? We're too genteel. We're too refined for a God who tolerates no rivals. A God who countenances the death of 3,000 people in one day because they worship the calf? We're not good with that. Think with me for just a moment because I know some of you are thinking, Jeff, why did you even get into this? Okay? Couldn't you just, like, let it go? Because let's face it, this kind of stuff turns people off. They don't like that. There's probably somebody in here for the very first time and they're thinking, great. (laughs) This is just another one of those Bible-thumping, hellfire and brimstone churches. But they disguise it with cool music and lights. And now we're getting the truth. Okay. Think with me, all right? Track me here. An article on Christian Newswire reported that Oprah Winfrey posted this question to her audience, okay? She asked, how can there be only one way to God? That was a question she asked her audience. And people began to fire back different responses, you know, and, and then one lady in the audience asked, what about Jesus? And Winfrey's response was, what about Jesus? And Oprah went on to explain how she had been a Baptist, 
until she heard a pastor make the statement that God was a jealous God, and that was it for her. The idea of a jealous God, a God who tolerated no rivals, did not fit with her belief that God is simply love. And wouldn't it be just a better world if everybody believed that God is just love? Now, friends, with all due respect to Oprah, and I will grant, no questions, she is a very successful and intelligent woman. And I know some of you think like she does. You're thinking, okay, Jeff, jealousy is a bad thing, right? I mean, I mean, the Bible has lists of sins and jealousy is in some of those lists, right? And if God is jealous, isn't he violating his own principle? Well, with all due respect to Oprah and to you, if you think like her, you got to think, all right? Of course, God is a jealous God. He has to be a jealous God. If there is, in fact, as the Bible clearly teaches, only one God, he cannot acknowledge or tolerate another God. For the one true God to acknowledge another God that in reality does not exist would make God a liar and guilty of idolatry. God has to be a jealous God because there is no other God with whom he can share his glory. He is the one and only. You and I, as human beings, on the other hand, do not have the right to be jealous because we are not God. Yes, he is a jealous God, and he must be a jealous God because all glory and all honor and all worship and all praise belong to him and him alone because he is God. Now, friends, today, we're continuing our lesson series in, in our year-long emphasis on the family of God. And during this, this series, we've been directing our attention to God the Father, the Father of this spiritual family. And today we're looking at the subject of His wrath. His wrath. And I know some of you already have a gut reaction to this topic. Because when you think of wrath, you think of rage, you think of some kind of uncontrolled outburst that creates damage that's way out of proportion to whatever wrong may have been done. And maybe some of you had a dad or a mom who was prone to violent outbursts. Or perhaps you're married to somebody like that. And that idea of wrath is just like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't believe that about God. But here's the thing, friends. I think if you'll just hang with me for a few moments, I think you'll find that God's wrath is something very different. And even though I know this may be hard to believe, I think you'll find it a welcome aspect of God's character. I know some of you are going, what? A welcome aspect? Let me also say this. If, if any of you out there are already starting to tune me out because you're thinking, my God is too loving for this. Wrath is unworthy of my God. Allow me to translate what you just said for you. Okay? Because if your God is too loving for wrath... What you're saying is, my God is too loving to be the God of the Bible or his son, Jesus. So in reality, I am not a Christian. I'm something else. Which is your business, okay? Just understand it for what it is. Now our focus verse is found in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 
It's up here on the screens. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for Him. Think about what he's saying there. He says, we know that there is only one God. One. There's not many. There's one. We know him as the Father who created everything and we exist not for ourselves because we are created beings, but we exist for him. He is the only true object of our worship our devotion, and our praise. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us to look into your word. And Father, we're tackling a very difficult and sensitive subject this morning, and I realize that. And so, Father, I pray that you would Help me to communicate well, to be clear, to be true to your word. As it says in your word, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, help every one of us here this morning to rightly divide your word, to handle it with care. And to seek the truth that you have for us. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. So what does God's wrath mean? What what does that mean? What is it? And how could I say it's a welcome aspect of God's character? How could I argue that people who reject the idea of God's judgment and wrath are rejecting something they actually need? Okay, how can I get there? Let's go back to our story. Remember, we just, we just got through this, this awful story that ends with the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And Moses throws down the tablets, and he, he breaks them into pieces at the foot of the mountain, and then he destroys the golden calf, and, and carnage ensues. Okay, people are dying. But the story goes on. That's not the end of the story. The story goes on and says this. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now now think about how jarring this must have been to Moses. Because here he is up on this mountain and God, God begins to describe himself and says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. I mean, 3,000 people just bit the dust. Seriously? Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And the Bible clearly indicates that God can be loving and just. He can be merciful and forgiving and yet wrathful. How is that possible? Well, a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to the prior two lessons, I would really encourage you to do this because we fleshed out these concepts in a lot greater detail. But in the first week, we talked about God's holiness. And the definition of holiness is there on your outline, and and it goes like this. God is holy, and, and, and what holiness means is it's God's absolute sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. And freedom 
from the potential of moral evil. In other words, it's not even possible for him to do evil. In fact, the Bible says that this through the, the prophet Habakkuk. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot, circle this word, tolerate. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Now, in addition to God's holiness, this idea of absolute sinless perfection, we learned then last week that God is also just. And the way we defined justice last week, kind of a general definition of justice, is justice simply means righteousness. Those, the, the words that were translated for justice and righteousness are essentially the same in the original Hebrew. It's righteousness. Doing, and what that means is doing in all circumstances that which is right and good. So you have this morally perfect God who is also just. So in every situation, at all times and at all places, he does what is right and what is good. And it goes on to say justice is simply God's holiness in action. So it is the outgrowth or the the playing out of his holiness that he does in all circumstances that which is right and good. And Psalm 11 says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. But what is wrath? When we talk about God's wrath, and and most of us kind of recoil when we hear that word, it's like, what exactly is that? Let me define it for you this way. And we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna give you four words and then and then we're gonna go back and talk about them. Wrath is determined. The determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him and rebels against him. Now let's just stop right there. Because I want to think about those four words, determined, willed, chosen, visceral. When it says, when it says determined, wrath is the determined reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him and rebels against him and all that is evil. That word determined simply means this will not stand. I will respond. Because I am holy, I will not tolerate evil. I will not just look the other way. It is willed. That second word simply means this aligns with who I am. It is consistent with my character. And my character is dead set against evil. It's not only determined and willed, it is chosen. Unlike human beings. Okay? When we get wrathful, often it's an uncontrolled outburst. Friends, God doesn't fly off the handle. God doesn't lose his temper. He's not sitting up in heaven and you do something wrong and he goes, Ah, man, I shouldn't have done that. (sighs) Okay, I'm God, but I'm giving myself a timeout. No, no. Okay, when God is wrathful, It is a choice. It is a rational, reasoned choice. It is not some angry outburst. And at the same time, it is visceral. There is an emotional element to it. You see, God is not just some you know, disembodied spirit that floats out there and there's no there's no real emotional attachment to any of the things he's created, okay? And some of you are thinking, where are you going here, Jeff? Let me give you a couple of examples. Because you understand this, all right? We all get this intuitively. Example number one, 
I submit that if you can watch a video or hear a description of a partial birth abortion and have no emotion, there's something wrong in your soul. I submit that if somebody abuses your wife or abuses your daughter or molests your grandchild and you have no emotional reaction to that, there is something dead wrong with your soul. I submit to you that if you can read the news that I read this week about Haiti, and found out the 30-some thousand meals that we packed last year have still not gotten through to our mission partner. As far as we know, they are sitting somewhere in Port-au-Prince because gangs control the road between La Croix and Port-au-Prince and our people are too afraid to make the trip. Why? Because they are pulling men and women out of cars, raping the women, shooting the men, and holding some as captives for kidnapping. And if you can know that and it doesn't get you, something wrong with your soul. You see, God just doesn't sit up in heaven and watch all the evil in the world and think, it's no big deal. It goes on to say, the result of God's wrath is condemnation. Certain acts are condemned. Condemnation, judgment. And ultimately, those who are under God's wrath, condemnation, judgment, and death, you see it throughout the Bible. Okay? Here's the way to think of wrath, friends wrath is the application of God's justice. God's justice. You think about it. A couple days this past week, I was the judge, all right? And I had cases come before me. People committed crimes. People did bad things to other people, and they come before me. And can you imagine what that would be like if I said, how do you plead? And the person says, guilty. And then I said, guess what? You can go home. Guess what? There's no penalty. You people would be calling Judge McKenna and saying, don't ever let that dude do that again. Keep him off the bench. That's not just, it's not right. There's something wrong in the universe when people can commit bad acts and there is no response. Now, friends, in the Bible, you see God's wrath and his, and his judgment on evil take kind of two different forms, all right? And the first is what I just loosely call punishment, okay? You have those instances in the Bible, for example, in the Old Testament, where you have the flood, people are doing all kind of crazy, awful stuff. You read about it in Genesis chapter 6, and then God sends a flood. And I mean, everybody's gone, right? Except the eight people on the ark and the, and the animals that they took on the ark. Everything else, except the animals that live in the water, everything else is just gone, right? Destroyed. And in the New Testament, you have examples of that. I mean, in the New Testament, you have a couple people who lie to the church and Boom, they're dead like this. And then you have the greatest example of God's direct punishment at the cross. And also in the whole concept of hell, which Jesus talked about more than anybody else. Interesting. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist makes a very fascinating statement. He says this. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Anybody know who he's talking about? Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. He's talking about Jesus, right? Ask yourself if Jesus sounds like gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. 
says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know what's fascinating? Is Jesus put himself right in the middle of judgment in the New Testament. Now, a lot of times what people forget is that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, right? I mean, he's God, right? So, so he was right there when the flood happened. He was right there when fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's God. So it's not like he didn't know that was happening. But Jesus himself, in his own words, said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? He's, he's saying, these, are, these seem like good people. I mean, they're, they're prophesying in my name and they're, they're doing miracles and they're driving out demons. And he said, then I will plainly tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Ooh. Now, there's another, there's another type of, of, of wrath that appears in, in the first part of Romans. And it's what scholars refer to as the wrath of abandonment. Okay? It's a little different than, than kind of direct punishment. It's a different kind of wrath that people experience. And it goes like this. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So, so it's, a, it's saying... God's wrath is coming upon the earth, right? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For although, and then he goes on to describe what's happening. He says, for although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And then it says this, therefore God, circle these three words, gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Ooh. I gave them over phrase is kind of frightening. It's like God is saying, it's not done. A couple passages later, it says, because of this, God, there's that phrase again, circle it, gave them over. To shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And that's not all. A couple, couple verses later, it says this. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God, here's those words, circle them again, gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Whoa. And this idea that God will give people over when they start down a sinful path and they refuse to turn back. That there is at times a point in certain people's lives where God says, have it your way. It's all you. And I don't know about you, But as I just look at those two things, punishment or abandonment, I don't know which is worse. I think it's a tough call. I can't imagine God looking at me and going, now, friends, I want to turn a corner here because I said something to you earlier that I really meant. I said to you earlier that I think if you really think about this, you will come to the conclusion that this aspect of God's wrath, when we truly understand it, is something that you will welcome. Something that I will welcome. And what's even more, it is something... That even though we may say we want a God that is just, ju- that is just, just love, 
Just mercy. Just forgive. We don't want any of that holiness and any of that justice and definitely not any of that wrath. We can leave that out. And we can get along just fine with the God of love. And I told you earlier, I think that you'll figure out here in just a moment that you need and I need a God that has wrath as part of his character. Okay, hang with me. Because you see, I believe understanding, an understanding of wrath is crucial for three things, okay? First of all, I believe it is, it is crucial for knowing the justice and love of God. It's absolutely crucial. If you reject the idea that God has wrath, you will never truly understand his love or his justice. You won't. And we're going to start with a real simple example and then we're going to work our way up, okay? Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children. Circle word hate, please. Whoever spares the rod. In other words, a person, a parent, who will not discipline a child hates that child. You have no regard for that child. You are not concerned about the future of that child. If you will never discipline that child, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, think about it, okay? Like I said, we're going to keep this easy to start. Don't you just love being at Walmart when there's a kid in there that their parents never disciplined them? Isn't that just a great experience? You got a kid that's grabbing stuff off the shelves, that's, that's throwing a tantrum and screaming and causing problems and making the line glow slower because mom, and, mom or mom and dad, if there is one, and they, they're like, I'll stop that, Johnny. Stop that, Johnny. And pretty soon, okay, if you're a normal human being, you don't want to slap the child. You want to slap the parent, right? (laughs) Stop saying stop it and do something about it. How many of you teachers, and I know we got quite a few teachers in here, don't you just love getting that little Johnny whose parents never disciplined him at home? Isn't he a joy to have in your classroom? Because you know, when you discipline him, they're coming in, right? And they're going to tell you that if you were just a better teacher, their child wouldn't be a problem. You know, um, this past week when I was in court, there were people sitting in that court that had been wronged wrong violated and I'm here to tell you that when somebody came before me and said I'm guilty I did what I'm accused of doing to that person over there if I looked at that person and said you know what I'm a judge of justice I'm not a judge of of justice and, and wrath I'm a judge of love and forgiveness and I'm just gonna let this guy go And as he walks out of the courtroom, he winks at you. And what you're going to say to me when I finally walk off that bench is you're going to say, that's not justice and it's not love because you mistreated me. I've been wronged here. I was violated. My home was broken into. My, My son got assaulted. And you're going to say there's nothing? That's not just, and it's not love, because you didn't love me. You didn't love my, my son. You see, friends, without wrath, without the application of justice by way of penalty, you cannot know the justice and the love of God. You can't. Here's the second thing. An understanding of God's wrath is crucial for a realistic view of yourself and myself. 
Okay, we have to be realistic about who we are in the eyes of God. And without God's wrath, you never can get there. Romans 3.10 says it this way, As it is written, there is no one righteous. No one righteous. Not even one. Okay? Now hang with me for just a second, friends. You see, we tend to ask this question about how we view ourselves in the wrong way. We ask, how can God, who is loving and forgiving and merciful, how can he judge people? I mean, how could he judge me? And how could he, how could he be wrathful toward me? Or anybody, for that matter. It's almost like we're sitting in judgment of God. You know, how could he do that? Let me ask a better question, okay? Flip the question. Ask this, how can a holy, okay, morally perfect, righteous, always does the right thing all the time, just, in other words, there is a consequence for action. How can a holy, righteous, just God know what I did and what I thought and what I said yesterday and not kill me last night? A little different spin on it, isn't it? How can a holy, righteous, just God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me last night? You see, until we ask the question that way, we don't really understand the holiness of God. We don't really think in terms of moral perfection. We don't really believe we have a problem. You see, until we ask the question that way, we think we're pretty good. Anything I did wrong, anything I thought, anything I looked at, you know what, it's just not that bad. I mean, me and God, we're like this. And there are people like me who in and of ourselves deserve something other than God's wrath on our own merits because we're just that good. We're okay. But when you flip the script and you start asking, why am I alive today? Why hasn't his fire that he talks about that consumes, why hasn't he consumed me? Why haven't I ended up like those Israelites? 3,001 day. No, I, I've, I've, never, I've never created a golden calf. But I have my own idols and so do you. And we all know it. And the big question is, why are we still alive? And when we start to ask that question, we begin to grasp the reality of who we are in the eyes of God. Now, there's one other aspect of this that I think is absolutely crucial. An understanding of God's wrath is crucial for living at peace in the world. Now, you're probably, you're probably looking at that and go, what? In other words, if, if I can't understand God's wrath, I can't really live at peace in the world? How, how much sense does that make, Jeff? Well, think about it this way. Romans twelve nineteen says this, and you're all familiar with this, okay? Do not take revenge, it says. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now let me ask you something. Just think about that verse and let me ask you this question. How do you explain that verse to a victim of real injustice? How do you tell a victim of human trafficking, don't take revenge, 
leave rooms for God's wrath. Oh, sorry, he's a God of love and mercy, so there isn't any. But don't take revenge anyway. How do you explain that verse to a rape victim or somebody who's been held in a concentration camp? How do you explain that verse? There's a philosopher by the name of Miroslav Volf, a Croatian guy who lived through the war in Bosnia where all that ethnic cleansing was going on. And this is one of the rare times, and I think I've only done it maybe two or three times in 21 years teaching here at Good News, that I've ever put a quotation by a human being in the outline, but I did this this week because I want you to wrestle with this all week long. I want you to read this over and over and ask yourself, is he right? Because here's what he says. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, the idea of divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone which is where a paper that underlines this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect Non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds with God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. See, friends, what he's saying is this idea of God that is just love and just mercy and there's never any judgment, there's not really holiness and there's definitely never wrath, that only gets it done in an environment that has never experienced real injustice, real violence, real pain. It's not real. And it's not an accurate representation of who God is. Now friends, your next step for this week, I hope that you'll take some time to wrestle with that quote that you'll take some time to think about what that means and what he's saying and why it is that God's holiness and justice and love necessitate the concept of wrath. It's part of who he is. Friends, another thing that, that maybe could be helpful to you today is class 101. It's coming up right after this service. We meet in the cafe for lunch but friends, this is, this is that class that, that we like to say here at Good News Gathering, you'll never truly understand this church until you take class 101. And friends, it'll be, it'll be over right around 3.30, 4 o'clock, right in that range. But it's a great way to learn what we believe here at Good News Gathering and why we do church the way we do. It's a great place to have your answer, get quest, answers to your questions about this church. I also hope, friends, that this week... As you're leaving, that you'll stop by. Our greeters are outside the doors with prayer bracelets for our missions partner in Haiti. That bracelet says, Hope Shines in La Croix 2020. I hope that this week that you'll spend some time, you'll look at that bracelet on your wrist and you'll say, I'm going to pray for those folks today because they're suffering, friends. Pastor Pierre told me this week that some of, those, some of the people that we serve down there are starving because food can't get through. And friends, finally, next Sunday night, we're doing our Get Started Life Group. It begins next Sunday night. 
at 6 p.m. at Cheryl, my house, okay? And so this is the thing, if you, if you want to sign up for that, because it's designed to give you kind of an introduction to some of the basic concepts of Christianity, just check that box on your Connect card, and we'll see you there. Friends, let's remember that we live in a world created by a holy, just, wrathful, and yet loving God. And next week, we'll focus on that subject of love and how this all wraps together. Let's go to God in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this day that you've given us and for this opportunity to dig into a subject that's hard. It's difficult. It's not one that we like to think about. And yet, Father, in order to have a well-rounded picture of who you really are, it's necessary for us. Help us, Father, to seek truth about you, not our preference. To see you as you really are, not as we would prefer you to be. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.